Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Um, Simeon. And uh, we're going to talk about the Bible, we're going to talk about the story that it tells, and hopefully uh, today will be enlightening and encouraging and connecting, but we'll, we'll kind of get there. But let's start with this. This is the good book. Yeah, the good book. How are we doing? Is this working? Oh, we seem to have got onto the lyric slide. See, the thing is, the problem with, the, with calling it the good book is that it's a bit of a misnomer, uh, because it's not good, and it's not a book. Well, it is good, but if you only have one adjective, then good doesn't really cut it, because it's kind of like saying the All Blacks are rugby fans, or like saying that Elon Musk is a stargazer, or it's like saying that last year, more people than average felt unwell. It's, it's, It's like it's an understatement of gargantuan proportions, because The story of the Bible is one literally earth-shattering, life-transforming, humanity-redeeming, epic saga. It's not just good. It's the key to understanding the greatest timeless truths and mysteries around God and humanity. It's also not a book. Now, it may look like a book to us today, but we are the privileged few who have something in our hands that has only been available for the less than the last 500 years. And for over a millennia before that, the Bible was a collection of eventually 66 distinct scrolls and writings compiled intermittently over 1,300 years, written by over 40 different authors that came from all walks of life, from fishermen and shepherds through to kings. Uh, It includes historical records, poetry, wisdom literature, songs, and prophecy. And it's been copied and recopied faithfully century after century after century. And the development of the Bible that we hold today, it's an amazing story, but we don't have time for it today. But one thing that we can take away as certain is that it's more like a library than a single book. Now, something else that the Bible isn't, before we get into what it is. The Bible does not stand for uh, basic instructions before leaving earth. I don't know if you've heard that before, but please don't ever use this little catchphrase. It's actually quite damaging, uh, because it suggests two things. Firstly, it suggests that the Bible is a rule book of things to follow, which it's not. And secondly, it suggests that our primary aim is to leave this life and go on into heaven, which it's not. Our primary aim is to partner with God in the redemption of all things and through the work of Jesus to ultimately see heaven and earth reunited again. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, what is the Bible then? Well, as I mentioned, it's a collection of various writings. Not every book of the Bible is historical chronology. Some is wisdom literature, some is poetry, or songs, or prophecy, or letters of advice. And just like we wouldn't read a newspaper the same way we would read Shakespeare, and you don't read a love letter the same way you read a textbook. So we need to learn to recognize what a piece of scripture is, what genre it is, uh, in order to be able to read it the way it was intended to be read. So the Bible is many things, but perhaps primarily it's a story. In fact, it's the greatest story ever written. It's the divinely revealed story of God's relationship with creation, and in particular with humanity, and then in our response to him. 
And what's so cool about this story is that it's real and it's ongoing. And like Jumanji, you're a part of it. Yeah? And it's not over yet. Now, theologians call this big story the meta-narrative. It essentially means it's the big overarching story into which all the various parts of Scripture find their place. They find their context and they contribute towards the whole. If you ever want to make proper sense of the Bible, you really need to start with knowing the story. So let's do that today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're here. I thank you that you're in each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint the words that I share that you would open our hearts to be receptive, and that through this morning, Lord, we can come to know you better and connect better with your spirit at work in this world and have a, a clearer vision of what it is that you're doing, Father, and where you've been, what you've been building, and ultimately what you're building us towards. In your name, amen. All right, who's excited? I hope you like slides. Stanley asked for my PowerPoint. I had to create a special link and send it to him, and then he nearly had a heart attack. He's like, 85 slides? I'm like, it's okay, Stan, it's okay. I guarantee you, it'll, it'll be within time. But uh, yeah, sometimes, thick and fast, keeps the story moving. Anyway, so the story of the Bible, it spans all of time, right? It starts right down at the very beginning of creation, and it moves on to a future destiny that is yet to be. So it is quite a long story. But fortunately, it can be broken down into sections, much like acts of a play. And like acts in a play, each act has different characters and scenes and different things that go on, but there's a continuity within the act where the storyline has, has a sense of um, yeah, unity. And then once the story really changes gear, so begins a new act. Uh, and there are various ways that you can break down this meta-narrative, but we're going to use a classic model because we are Coast Vineyard, we're following N.T. Wright, yes, uh, and he uses the six acts of Scripture. So we're going to go with that today. And the six acts of Scripture are these. They are creation, the fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and new creation. And we'll explore three of those today and three of those next week. And we'll see how they fit together in the story they tell. But before we jump in, we need one more illustration from N.T. Wright, just to make sure you get your money's worth. Right? N.T. Wright describes the meta-narrative as being like a mountaintop rising up out of clouds. And if you imagine the linear timeline of the Bible just kind of follows the horizon that we see in this image. And uh, the most important pinnacle of the whole saga is Jesus, his life, death, his resurrection. And those things are crystal clear in Scripture. And everything before that in the Old Testament is kind of leading up to the cross, and everything after that in the New Testament is shaped by the impact of the cross. But the further you get away from the cross, the cloudier things become. And so whether you're looking at origins and creation at this end, or you're looking at the return of Christ, the new creation at the other end, things can be a little bit hazy. Um, you do see some things. But as N.T. Wright describes it, it's like signposts pointing to fog. We get indications and hints and a vague sense of things, but exactly how it happened or will happen can sometimes be a bit speculative. And so, with that analogy in mind, let's begin our story. Freeze the moment in time Travel back down the corridor of Eden See the apple shine it was gonna be the ladder to the skies in their mind. 
I teach teenagers, so I've got to do things to mix it up and keep people's attention. Uh, and I figured if I just tell one story, you're all going to fall asleep. So let's break it up with a bit of music every now and then. So um, there are two accounts of creation, two accounts of creation in the Bible. There is Genesis chapter 1 and there is Genesis chapter 2. And uh, there's different ways that different Christians understand and, understand and interpret these accounts. Some see them as chronologically and scientifically literal. The God created everything exactly as it says, in that time order and order um, described. Others, however, would interpret things a bit more figuratively. And they would see that the creation accounts are poetically exploring the greater truths of God's nature, humanity, and creation, rather than prescriptives, hows, and whens that we often ask as modern thinkers. Now, whichever way you understand it, whether you're more of a literal creationist or a theistic evolutionist or somewhere in between the two on the spectrum, all camps kind of agree on certain key principles. And the, the key truths um, combine to make certain things clear. So let's start here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's an image of dark, watery chaos. This is the ancient world's way of describing non-existence. And out of this darkness, God brings an intentional, structured creation. Now, in the first account of creation that we see in Genesis chapter 1, God spends the first three days separating. He separates light from dark. He separates the sky from the sea, and he separates land from the water. And then days four to six, God fills those areas accordingly in the same order with various things. So he fills light and dark with the sun, the moon, and the stars. He fills the sea and the sky with fish and birds, and he fills the land with animals, and then in his image, humanity. And then on the seventh day, God rests. And this, uh, in this creation, God is all-powerful. Yeah? He speaks. He creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. He speaks, and there is. He is separate from creation. He's not bound by the limitations of any created thing. He's far beyond all of those things. He comes across as very masculine, very all-powerful. God is other. And then Genesis chapter 2 kind of rewinds the clock and retells particularly day 6 through a different lens. In this account, God plants a garden, and he forms and he shapes animals and humanity out of dust. And then he personally breathes his own life into man. And he's relational and he's conversational. And then he takes part of man and shapes woman. And then he brings the two together. In the second account, God is close. He is intimate. Yeah, he is connected and integrated with his connection. He is very feminine. And God is relational. And these two accounts combine to give us a more holistic view of God's nature and character and his relationship with humanity. Now, whether, you're, again, you're more of a theological, um, sorry, theistic evolutionist or a literal creationist or somewhere in between, both cramps agree on certain key principles, and they're roughly these. That God is the creator of all things. That creation itself is not God. Remember, for thousands of years, people worshipped the sun and the mountains and the stars. They are not gods, Genesis is saying. God is bigger than all of those things. Creation has order and structure and purpose. It is intentional. It is designed the pinnacle of creation, of everything that he did, is humanity. 
Yeah, we're the only thing made in his image. We're given the title, Imago Dei, the image of God. And he specifically says, you know, let's do something different here. Let's create man in our image. And all things are created for relationship. Now, this last one might surprise you. Relationship in creation? Well, God is relational in himself. Understanding relationship is key to understanding creation. You know, God is Father and Son and Spirit. And he creates a reflection of his nature. You know, this triune nature, Father, Son, Spirit, it appears in the first two verses of Genesis. And we are creational being, relational beings designed to coexist in community. So, Act 1, creation, is a story of harmony. It's a story of fruitfulness and bounty and wonder. And most importantly, God and humanity in partnership. We are created in his image to reflect his nature and his created world. And, to, uh, and each other. God made us to be mirrors, reflectors, mirroring what God is like. Act one is a state of existence where God's space and our space overlap and coexist interchangeably. It's the way things should be. It is relationally harmonious. But things don't stay that way for long. No trace could I find of any joy The sirens promised they had found a way With the light to turn what's good And should be wanted into what is highest above All desires and loves Till my heart would obey Whatever it wants, whatever it started singing. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> um, okay, that band, by the way, is called the Grey Havens, and they are fantastic. Musically varied, very talented, fully in love with God, theologically on point. What more could you want from a band? The Grey Havens. So since they're not getting royalties for today, I'll give them a shout out. Check out the Grey Havens. Okay, so the fall. Within the garden, there are two trees. Yeah, there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there is the tree of life, or the tree of eternal life. And God encourages Adam and Eve, hey, you should eat the fruit of all the trees in the garden, and specifically mentions this one. But then he says, but never ever eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is humanity going to trust God's declaration of right or wrong? Or will they take autonomy and decide for themselves what they think is best? See, up until now, God has been the one to determine what is good and what is not good. Every day of creation is finished with God looks at what he did and he said, it is good, it is good. And he makes man and he says, it is very good. And then he sees that man is alone and he says, it is not good that man is alone. And he makes woman and he brings them together. God, as the creator, he knows what is best. Yeah, we can trust him. But enter the Satan, the deceiver. That's what it means, the deceiver. A creature with no known origin or name which seems to exist in rebellion to God and his good world. The Satan persuades Adam and Eve to reject God's authority and to determine truth and reality for themselves. And they choose to eat the forbidden fruit. They turn away from God. They stop being mirrors and instead they become self-portraits. In response, God outlines the consequences of this rebellion. Now, this is not a curse for wrongdoing. God's not throwing a hissy fit. He's outlining this is what's going to happen as a result. 
It's uh, the repercussions of a life based on self-determination instead of divine trust. And it's a broken and a corrupted world. A world of pain and suffering and even death. But despite this, God promises to one day redeem humanity, to destroy evil and restore creation to what it should be. And Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. Okay, I'm going to take a little sidestep here from the story because I want to clarify a couple of bits that are done really badly very often when it comes to this scene. People often see God as an angry, pouting old man who's flying off into a rage. Like, you know, like, oh, I left you for two minutes and you ate the fruit. Like, can I not? Oh, right, that's it. Get out of here. That's it. You're out of Eden. You know, I'm not interested anymore. Relationship is over. As if God's going to stay in the garden and he sends Adam and Eve away from himself. Guys, this is completely wrong. Completely wrong. Right, the Bible is clear that God removes Adam and Eve from Eden in case they should also eat from the tree of life and then be stuck eternally in a state of sin and broken relationship. Yeah? Removing them from Eden is not a punishment so much as an act of protective mercy. Secondly, God is everywhere. He was with Adam and Eve in the wilderness just as he was with them in Eden. And if you're not sure, two verses after God takes them out of Eden... Eve says that she brings forth a child with God's help, and then four verses later, God is personally chatting to Cain about making good choices. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. (laughs) God goes with them out of the garden. He is with them in the wilderness. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. In Jeremiah, God says, Am I only a God nearby and not a God far away? Can anyone hide from me in secret places so I can't see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Paul says in Romans, Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers can separate us from the love of God. So, Be encouraged. Whatever you're going through, God is present. If you feel like you're in the wilderness, or if you even feel like God has rejected you or turned his back on you or somehow cast you away from himself, that is not what scripture tells us. Yeah? Be encouraged. God is with you in the wilderness. Okay, back to the story. So act two, the fall, doesn't actually end with Adam and Eve's rebellion. In fact, it actually stretches for another thousand years And it describes humanity's utter decline. Generation after generation gets progressively more evil and corrupt and deeper and deeper into rebellion against God. And increasingly proud of that fact. I mean, Cain kills Abel. Lamech collects women as slaves and sings songs about how violent he is. Things get so bad that it appears that even the lines between the mortal world and the demonic become blurred. And so ultimately, God floods the world to eradicate this corrupted humanity and start afresh with a righteous family, Noah. But the problem of rebellion and sin is embedded in the human heart. And so even Noah's descendants begin building Babylon to challenge God's authority. There we go. Uh, To challenge God's authority and display the greatness of humanity. Uh, So God has to start something new. They say, look how she goes She gave herself away Her crown, her throne Like a fool, like a renegade Now wasting her days And a better you On her tricks and charades But 
Israel. <clears throat> God calls a righteous man, Abraham, and he promises to make him the father of a great nation who will be God's chosen people. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob is renamed Israel, and henceforth the family adopts the name the Israelites. Israel has 12 sons, including Joseph, who ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt, and he brings the whole Israelite line there to settle. Obviously, you're getting the very speed version today of Israel. So over time, the Israelites grow hugely in number, and the Egyptians enslave them in fear that they are going to rise up and dominate. And so the Israelites live bitterly as slaves for 430 years, and they're crying out to God for freedom. So God sends Moses, and through him and a series of 10 rather cool plagues that show God's authority over each of the gods of Egypt, uh, through the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, he dramatically brings the Israelites out of slavery and he leads them through the wilderness to the boundary of a land that God had promised Abraham centuries before. Now, during this period of wandering, God proves himself time and again as Israel's miraculous provider. And God also gives them the law and a system of sacrifices and priests and a temple and a tabernacle. Now, to us, Books like Leviticus and its system of killing animals and bloodshed and specific rituals, it can seem quite barbaric, legalistic, rudimentary. But at the time, it was absolutely liberating. You've got to understand, so in the surrounding nations of Mesopotamia, they also worshipped gods and connected with them through sacrifices and worship. But in pagan society, you never knew where you stood with the gods. Yeah, if a harvest was bad or your wife was barren, or your children were sick, the conclusion was always, oh, I must have displeased the gods. I've got to earn their favor. I need to sacrifice more. But conversely, if your harvest was good, and your family was fertile and healthy and strong, the conclusion was, oh, the gods have blessed me. So that they don't think I'm ungrateful, I have to sacrifice more. Now, if you made a mistake, you could try and appease the gods, and atone for it, but you never knew whether your penance was enough. I mean, how mad were the gods? So whatever happened in these surrounding nations, its people were trapped in a constant escalation of needing to sacrifice more and more and more, and never knowing for sure where they stood with the divine powers. Eventually, this leads people to cutting themselves, maiming themselves, and even offering their own children to the flames as acts of devout devotion. So God called Israel to be other, to be different. He revealed to Abraham that he does not want child sacrifice, but rather he will provide for humanity. And while the surrounding nations named their gods, made idols of them, God had no image and no name. Nations had kings. Israel was given a theocracy with God as their king. And as Stanley said last week, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. And through the sacrificial law and rituals, God established the boundaries. Again, it's not barbaric, it's liberating. If he says, oh, you've committed this sin, then you need to make this sacrifice, and then you know that that sin is atoned for and you're at peace with God. Yeah? Oh, you've been made unclean, then go through this ritual and you know that you are now clean. Don't keep escalating your sacrifices, just give me a proportion relevant to how things are going. Give me a proportion of your harvest and so on. 
There's a series of checks and measures to make sure that everyone is provided for and that social inequality is never too great. And it seems logical, right? Israel has everything they need to live right. Yet through God's holy law, they can choose that his way of life again. They can trust God's good and restore that broken relationship between God and humanity. I mean, problem solved. You know, Moses actually presented Israel with the same choice that Adam and Eve had uh, that they faced in the garden. He says, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. Choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. It's the same choice. Hmm, what would they do? Where am I? Yeah. Unfortunately, they don't listen. And at the end of Moses' life, he says this. He says, you have rebelled against the Lord while I've been alive. And it's only going to get worse after I'm gone. I know that in the future, you're going to stop caring about what is right and what is wrong. And you will disobey the Lord and stop living the way I've told you to live. And he was right. Under Moses' successor, Joshua, Israel conquer and settle the promised land. They reject God's anointed judges, like Samuel, in favor of kings. And you get Saul and David and Solomon. And after this, the nation essentially has a civil war, and they divide with ten nations in the north, forming the nation of Israel, and two tribes in the south, making uh, Judea. And Israel and Judea don't generally get along. And generation after generation, both Israel and Judea, they reject God's law, they worship false gods, and they exploit the poor and the vulnerable. And occasionally, a good king like Hezekiah or a particular prophet like Elijah will bring the nation back to God, but it's always short-lived. Israel longs to live just like everyone else around them. That's heavy, eh? Lord, you've called us to be other, and yet we long often to live like everyone else around us. Help us, Lord, to live in line with the way you have called us to, to trust your goodness. Because while the law seemingly promises a path to restoration, in reality, it only reveals the depth of human rebellion. Sacrifices can cover an offense, but they never deal with a heart that still longs to sin. Century after century, God's people rebel and reject him. And God is gracious and forgiving and faithful, but it is clear that the human condition of rebellion and selfishness cannot be resolved through laws and sacrifices. So God sends the prophets, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, to warn God's people, hey, you're about to reap the consequences of this long rebellion. Like Moses, they witness firsthand that humanity is incapable of following God. And so through through them, God promises to do something new. Ezekiel prophesied, God says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Jeremiah prophesied, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with Judea, different from what's gone before. And I've spoken on that before. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. But as you can imagine, Israel and Judea, they ignore the prophets. 
And they actually rebel against the major military powers of their time. And in consequence, Assyria attacks and conquers the 10 tribes that made up Israel in 722 BC, and they are essentially erased from the remainder of Scripture. Not long later, about 150 years later, Babylon destroy the southern kingdom of Judea, and they take away its inhabitants as slaves in exile in Babylon. But even while exiled, God reminds the Israelites that he is faithful to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and ultimately he will make all things new. So Act 3, Israel, ends with a surviving cluster of Israelites returning home after 70 years of exile in Babylon. Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the temple to God, and the Old Testament ends. And there are 400 years of scriptural silence before the New Testament begins. Now, Act 4, Jesus, we're going to explore next week. But let's take one moment of his life that connects the dots with everything we've seen so far today. In Act 1, creation, we saw that God turns chaos into order, darkness into light. The world was intended to be a perfect reflection of God's communal nature, and we were created in his image as mirrors of God's character. But we were also created with a choice of whether to trust and to follow him or to seize autonomy and make our own decisions of what's best. In Act 2, the fall, we see that rejecting God is a downward spiral of suffering that leads back to chaos. We didn't listen, we don't listen to our conscience or follow the beckoning call of God and no purging of evil and a restart with a righteous family has any permanence because humanity can't direct itself back into right relationship with God. We are thoroughly fallen. We prefer to be self-portraits. Act 3, Israel shows us that the law and the sacrifices in themselves can't redeem humanity. No matter how we might want to do good, our hearts are evil. As the Apostle Paul later says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But the things I hate to do, that I do. Ah, wretched man am I. Scripture says repeatedly, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned away. Together they have become worthless, so no one does good, not even one. We need new hearts. At the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and the cup and he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you. And he added, Unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you have no part in me. Seems a bit weird. Uh, but we realize that Jesus is actually referring to himself as the tree of life. See, three of Jesus' crucial I am statements that we began exploring last week with Stanley. He says, I am the bread of life, food that gives life, fruit from the tree of life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And most significantly, he says, I am the true vine. He likens himself to this plant and says that we're his branches. Jesus is inviting us to metaphorically eat his fruit. In John 6, he says, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And even John 3.16 says, the reward for those who choose Christ and embrace him is eternal life. It's constant. It's throughout Scripture. And if we're to fast forward, we even see actually at the very end in Revelation that the tree of life is again outside the throne room of God. So remember, Jesus is the linchpin on which everything else in Scripture rests. 
He links the first with the last, and he fulfills everything in between. And by giving his body and his blood for us, represented today with the wine and the bread, we, make this, we face the same choice that Adam and Eve did in Eden. Are we going to reject him and choose autonomy? Deciding for ourselves what is good and evil and defining our own path. Or are we going to lay that down and trust God's definition of right and wrong and follow his direction for our life? Now, this concept of communion reflecting the choice of Eden, it may seem strange or unfamiliar, but actually, it's just rephrasing language you probably are very familiar with. Things like surrendering our life to Jesus, making Jesus the Lord of our life, becoming born again, giving Jesus our hearts, all this stuff, it's all language about laying down our autonomy and choosing instead God's declaration of right and wrong, his wisdom for our life, becoming mirrors, not self-portraits. Will you trust Jesus today? Will you recognize the lifelessness of self-determination and human autonomy? Will you eat the fruit that Jesus offers? And by eating the bread and drinking the cup, say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I surrender my will to yours. I trust your leading and guidance, your declaration of right and wrong. Because knowing the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, either by natural conscience or through the law, it never leads to restore relationship with the Father. It never leads to a righteous life. Because our hearts are evil, we are incapable of saving ourselves. We need Jesus to give us tender, responsive hearts with his laws written inside us. So today, guys, can I encourage you? Choose Jesus. Choose life. So if you want to choose Jesus this morning, or if you've already made that decision and you want to reaffirm it, can I just say, uh, I invite you to take communion today. There's going to be uh, stations at the front here and stations at the back. Uh, and can I just say today, um, can you just, if we, we take the elements from the stations, and then can we take them back to our seats? And before you take them, um, just amongst yourselves, we're not going to do this communally, but just yourself, pray and just commit again to following Jesus. And as you take it today, think about it, yes, representative of the sacrifice he made on the cross, but equally of what we've looked at today. And saying yes again to Jesus, choosing to trust God and to eat from the tree of life. See it as symbolic of signifying that you trust God's wisdom and you want to exchange your autonomy that leads to death for his wisdom that leads to eternal life. Well, thanks again for tuning in to today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you're keen to find out more about us as a church whānau, you're welcome to go to coast.org.nz or of course we'd love to meet you in person. We meet at 10am at Aurewa College on the beautiful Hibiscus Coast and you're more than welcome. Be blessed and have a great day.